The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very good morning to you. You're watching Scorebox with Juliana, Karen and myself, Steve Sedgwick. And these are your headlines. Another day, another milestone. The Dow rallies to a record high, closing above 27,000 for the first time. A day after the S&P tops 3,000. Jerome Powell keeps July rate cut hopes alive in his second day of testimony, saying the Fed is prepared to act in the face of growing global risks. The Fed chair continues to raise concerns about Libra, while President Trump weighs in on Facebook's cryptocurrency saying it will have little standing. President Trump also stokes tensions with Beijing, accusing China of not sticking to promises as markets await key trade data out of the mainland. And at this hour, China's Fosun Tourism Group is in talks with Thomas Cook over a 750 million pound capital injection. Boris Johnson praises this special relationship and vows to stand up for British diplomats amid pressure from his own party. And from Wimbledon to the Cricket World Cup, all the latest sporting action, including coverage from Silverstone ahead of the British Grand Prix. Another big outing for the major indices in trade yesterday as uh, many investors continue to respond to the power put that's the central bank ready to act as appropriate and uh, meant a 27,000 point handle on the Dow in session. A very strong outing for the Dow Jones average, uh, eight tenths of a percent higher. And uh, you could see the S&P 500 also just a fraction of that 300, a uh, 3,000 threshold that it breached in session a day earlier. But uh, highs across the board, you saw record closes for both the Dow and the S&P. The Nasdaq, a little bit liked by the Finnish, as you can see, uh, in contrast to the rest, just trading a fraction weaker by individual uh, trades. Best day for the Dow since June 20. And when it comes to the individual components of the market, you saw industrials and financials uh, leading with some fractional gains. What were investors responding to? Well, just further confirmation that we do have a central bank that's uh, prepared to cut interest rates. We've seen very strong testimony this week from Jay Powell about all the uncertainty linked to the trade war that's been waged between the US and China. So weaker monetary policy settings has propelled more investors off the sideline. When it comes to trade, and we've had more commentary on that overnight, the U.S. president has said that China is not living up to promises it made on buying agricultural products from American farmers. So the latest salvo, and some investors have taken that as a negative tone again on trade. Uh, in terms of some of the big components that have shifted the market, it's been a stunning move from 26,000 points on the Dow. We were at that level in January last year, January 2018. So it's taken a little more than a year and a half to try and track that another thousand point level to get to 27,000 points. So which stocks have been behind that mega move? You can see them on the boards here, about six of them, Microsoft in particular, a whopping gain of 53% over the time frame. The tech company are well and truly out in front. Visa, a fairly traditional part of the markets and financial services when you think about all the, the disruptors, all the fintech players, Visa has been right out there in the mix, 47% north. Cisco, also a company at the forefront of technology, working with 5G, that company, and we just heard an acquisition a couple of days from this company, Acacia, 
That stock up 38%. Nike in the mix. Merck, Walt Disney, uh, the other one rounding up uh, the six in terms of top performers. Now, in terms of what we're seeing elsewhere, uh, the rest of the markets, I think, are going to be picking up on some of that action. We'll wait to see whether we do have uh, a decent uh, close for the European markets uh, later on today. But I think trade, just a little bit of an irritating uh, thorn on the side for many investors still. Because oh, there's, there's thorns the in the, the side for investors left, right and centre because those investors want the Kool-Aid. They want the... Uh, the caffe- fully caffeinated drink that's going to get them to 28,000 and beyond as well. They're, the only slight problem is, of course, is that the Fed can only do so much, especially when the data is pretty damn good. Have you seen the data in the last 24 hours again? Not only this week have we already had really good uh, consumer credit figures as well, showing there's actually no blockages there as well. But we've now had CPI, which showed the core figure rising uh, to 2.1% on an annual basis, up 0.3 month on month. And the really inconvenient fact that the weekly jobless figures were fantastic. Now, for those of us who like to see job creation, that is really good news. For those of us who want to see the market pumped up to oblivion, oh, not such good news. 200 9,000 uh, K was the jobless figure. That's down from 22K, uh, 222,000 the week earlier. So I'm sorry that the data remains ambiguous. The jolts data we mentioned earlier in the week was pretty damn good as well. So we've had good consumer credit, good jolts data, okay uh, core CPI figures, jobless claims were uh, falling again as well. And yet there are potential Fed picks from the Trump administration who are going to go, who want percentage cuts straight away yeah, of interest rates. But if you consider some of the regional Fed districts out yesterday, they also pointed to decent business dynamics that they were seeing. So you've got this split commentary about whether a rate cut is justified just as the market is very much in one corner saying, we're going to get that rate cut, it's going to be 25 basis points, maybe more. But does that even matter? I mean, Federal Chair Jerome Powell has really tied his hands now. I don't think he has the flexibility to change his mind. Well, I think you're right and you're wrong. I think you're right in that he doesn't have flexibility on on the July move of 25 basis points. But there were... As you know better than I do, there were uh, people talking about 50 basis points straight away plus September or October. So they were talking about 50 to 75 basis points this year. So I believe you're right in the fact his hands are tied for July, but I'm not entirely sure about thereafter as well. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to mix things up a little bit. We've got Duncan Wrigley with us, who is head of China research at Sung Hung Kai Financial. Good morning to you. You you look like you're interested in that one as well. Have you got anything to say about US (laughs) interest rates and what it means for the global economy? Um, Well, I I have seen that Global PMIs look quite weak, and yeah. expectations are that, that things are going to, to weaken further. Yeah. Um, it does seem to be in the markets, from, from what I can tell, there's expectation of at least one rate cut. Yeah. So if that doesn't happen, then I guess the markets are going to be quite And I think that, you, that, that actually makes this point more important for the, what you were saying, because many people say the US doesn't need a rate cut necessarily. Mm. Uh, again, dare I say, I suggest they, everyone's getting their credit, and whether that's true or not, well then let's just chuck that idea out there. But the world potentially wants lower borrowing costs in dollar-denominated assets as well. And therein lies a very important issue. A lot of emerging market dollar-denominated debt is due for renewal in 2019-2020. And they, of course, would love to see a weaker dollar uh, and weaker costs there. it doesn't normally correlate. It's not a a guarantee, a written guarantee, that you get lower rates, you get a lower US dollar. The research research has been mixed. Don't don't go up, do they, going forward? Because your your costs in those dollars... But there's no guarantee you get 25 basis point reduction that you actually suddenly get 
and lower dollar. Let's uh, take this forward. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Duncan. Nice to see you. Good morning. You're with us for quite a while. We're actually here to talk about China, so let's do that. <laughs> President Trump has accused China of, quote, letting us down on a pledge to buy agricultural goods. Oh, that didn't take long, did it? When was the G20? 28th of June? Hmm. I thought the, the rapprochement was uh, set in stone. Anyway, the US leader tweeted he hoped they would start buying soon, implying Beijing was not, uh, has not upheld its side of the tariff truce struck by President Trump and Xi at the G20 last month. The Chinese side has never confirmed details of what was agreed at the meeting. In his second day of testimony on Capitol Hill, Fed Chair Jerome Powell again cited trade as a major uncertainty. The trade negotiations that have been going on have injected uncertainty for those businesses into their supply chains. So many of them have moved their supply chains, some moved them to Mexico, and then found that Mexico might be the target of tariffs. Um, others are considering what to do. It does seem to be weighing on the outlook. We see um, you know, weakness in, in, in manufacturing and investment and trade in the United States, and that's where it shows up. Well, there you go. You've heard what apparently the president's tweeted. And it's quite a mild tweet by the president's term, not, not like his, uh, his rebuking of the British ambassador to the United States. Well, that was a different kettle of fish, wasn't it? Um, what's going on? Well, I think for this whole process, there's been at least two narratives in what's going on in, in, the, uh, in the talk. And that's between. just in the White House. It, well, <laughs> <laughs> and then you've got the Chinese side. So, I mean, the Chinese account on what happened there in, in the G20 uh, was, that, was that President Trump expressed his hopes that China would uh, import more, more farm goods rather than China promising to do so. Um, I think the reality is that there was uh, at least some kind of implicit understanding of a, a quid pro quo, which is China imports more, more farm goods. Uh, and in, in, in exchange, U.S. softens its uh, embargo on Huawei. And, and the U.S. is starting to move forward on Huawei, but there's a process there. And so I think there's also likely to be a process on the Chinese side in terms of increasing farm imports. So this tweet isn't necessarily negative, which is the, why the market perception has been to an extent, because to me it seems as though this is something China can actually deliver. Unlike on technology and promises around rowing back some of its big plans for the future, that's quite difficult in setting that in stone in legislation in China. But on farm goods, we could be set up for, a, oh, I, I've, I've heavied China to buy more farm goods, and then suddenly there's a trade deal around agriculture. I mean, that could very feasibly play out, right? Well, well, absolutely. I think that is an area that China's prepared to, uh, to, to negotiate on. Um, and, and we're in a process here, right? So after G20, we, we merely have the, um, the reset back to the, the sort of situation where it was in April, May before everything broke down. Um, but we don't have a deal yet. And we don't have formal talks restarting yet. Uh, there was meant to be a, a phone call between um, principals either side last week, Liu He and, and Lighthizer. Um, but actual formal talks on the nitty-gritty haven't started yet. So um, I think it's, it's quite likely that we'll see some movement on both sides as these talks get going um, on areas like farm imports and, and Huawei, for example. Um, but, but the process to actually get a fully uh, formed trade agreement is going to take at least months and, and maybe 
you know, longer, it's going to be very difficult. Now, you mentioned the two different sides and the two mm. different interpretations of what was agreed at the G20. In terms of the pressure, the political pressure that the two sides are facing, we know that President Trump has rare, rare bipartisan support to take a hard stance against China. On President Xi's side of things, what do you think his political constituents are, are telling him? What do they want to see in him and in his negotiations with Trump? Um, well, China is a big country with many different interest groups, like, like the US, right? So, um, and the different interest groups are pushing in different directions, understandably. So you do have um, businesses that want to keep uh, trade flowing as normal with, with the US and, and investment and so forth. Um, but then you also have um, industries that, that have substantial support from the Chinese government um, that don't want opening up to, to proceed too quickly, you know. So you, you have domestic industries which are relatively protected. How easy is it, um, though, for the Chinese to quickly turn on these ag contracts with US suppliers as well and turn them off against? Because well, there are certain industries and certain things. It's not, if you're ordering a, a ship to be built out of South Korea, this takes five to ten years, it's the project, away, from, from the first commissioning to the design to actually getting this boat through as well. But when you're ordering ag, how difficult is it just to turn this on and off? Oh, you're absolutely right. It's very easy. Yeah. Um, so, for example, just before the G20 talks, China um, ag agreed to purchase uh, half a million tons of, of soybean uh, imports uh, as a, a goodwill gesture. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's quite easy. Mm. Um, and that, that's at but a time... It's a forward contract, just like that as well. Just, just, yeah. just a quick question for you. Just, just tying this together with the, uh, the CPI figures we saw out of China earlier in the mm -hmm. week as well. Once again... Uh, pork prices have stabilised a little bit, but we know that because of the devastating impact of swine flu, there, there is an issue on that and its input into inflation. And the fresh fruit prices as well have gone up extraordinarily because of some supply issues there as well. Um, China needs these ag products coming into its country, not necessarily the specific ones the US wants to sell. Uh, but how difficult does the Chinese economy have sourcing everything it needs at the moment, given the fact that we've got this huge longer-term project, One Belt and Road, but in mm. the short term, are there supply constraints for various parts? I mean, we're talking agricultural product here, but across the industry, across the country? Um, well, I, I think it, it's very clear that in some key technological components that the US has um, a, a monopoly or virtual monopoly on and has threatened to, to, to choke off in the case of Huawei, um, those particular uh, technologies are hard for China to source elsewhere if the US does take a very hard, hard stance. In terms of other... Other products, yeah, go on. Other products, not, not so much. Okay, the only reason yeah. I ask, and, and, I, and I think yeah. it was interesting you said not so much, just because the Chinese economy is slowing. That's not a yeah. slur on China, that is a fact. It's had double digit for most of the, this century, but now it's slowed down, and now we look at a six-hander. I'm just wondering what the real demand picture is out of China, because there is oscillating figures, for instance, the, the Chinese car sales, which actually have lessened our view that actually the Chinese economy is growing as robustly as perhaps the official figures state. Um, uh, for sure, the Chinese economy is on a, on a slowing path, um, and it has been over the last few years. I mean, this is part of the accepted price that China is, is uh, paying in order to carry out some, some painful reforms in terms of controlling the, the sort of debt, um, other structural reforms, tackling overcapacity. That's been going on for a couple of years now, and uh, policymakers in China accept this slowdown, a moderate control slowdown, as part of the, the price for, for carrying out these reforms. And as long as, I mean, the key criteria is as long as 
employment remains reasonably strong. And, and so far, it has seemed to remain okay across the country as a whole. There are pockets of weakness. Because but otherwise, but yeah. that's when we start getting social problems. Thank you very much yeah. indeed. We'll pick up the conversation just a bit. Sure. Uh, meantime, Fed Chair Jerome Powell have reaffirmed his view on the US economy and the Fed's willingness to cut rates in his second day of testimony to lawmakers on Capitol Hill. Powell again flagged international weakness and also said that monetary policy hadn't been as accommodative as originally thought. The US economy is in, is in a very good place, but we also see um, those uncertainties I mentioned as weighing on the outlook. And we also see some weakness in the United States economy that I've mentioned, housing, manufacturing, uh, trade. Uh, so, um, and, and I think, um, you know, we have signaled, and central banks around the world are, 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 are seeing weakness everywhere, and they're also providing more accommodation. We've signaled that we're open to doing that. And you're seeing that in you're seeing that in in um, in in the curve now. You're seeing that embedded in the United States interest rate curve. Meanwhile, the IMF has backed the ECB's plans for fresh stimulus and warned the eurozone is facing a prolonged period of quote anemic growth and inflation. Risks from trade tensions, Brexit, and Italy are also set to weigh on the block, according to the fund, which expects growth in the eurozone to slow to 1.3 percent this year before rounding to 1.9 percent in 2020. IMF managing director Christine Lagarde has been nominated to replace Mario Draghi as ECB I was say, president. Wouldn't, wouldn't the greatest shock of all time be if the IMF said, no, we don't like your plan. Surely when the leadership has a, <laughs> uh, a bridge between the two, of course it's going to be a happy, yeah, well done, guys. Nice one. Oh, true. No surprise there. Yeah. Coming up on the show, China's first on tourism group announces plans for a capital injection into Thomas Cook. We'll take a look at what that could mean for the ailing British travel firm. And if you just can't get enough of Squawkbox, be sure to tune in for our very own podcast. Head to cmc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. Meantime, for our listeners out there, stick around for some more. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nanshao, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Welcome back to Squawk Box. Let's take a look at Asian markets. Uh, a little bit of a mixed picture when we look across the whole region. Uh, Shanghai Composite and the Hang Seng up uh, pretty, uh, just over a third of a percent, uh, nearly a, a quarter, a fourth of a percentage point in Hong Kong. The Nikkei 225 up nearly two tenths of a percent. In Australia, stocks trading a little bit weaker, down nearly a third of one percentage point. We are awaiting some fresh Chinese trade numbers to come through later this morning. Investors in Asia also digesting President Trump's latest tweet 
tweet with regards to the state of U.S.-China trade negotiations. He really uh, raised the pressure on China, suggesting that they are letting us down by not buying more agricultural products. Remember, of course, at the G20, President Trump suggested that there was agreement from the Chinese side to buy more agricultural goods uh, and perhaps in exchange directly for easing of restrictions on Huawei. So a little bit of a concern around re-escalation intentions, but no massive moves. Uh, obviously, the positives outweighing the negatives at this point. Let's take a look at European opening calls. Yesterday was another down day for the stock 600, the benchmark in Europe. It logged its fifth negative session in a row. That was the first five-day losing streak since November 2018. So a little bit of no negative momentum building across Europe. Now this morning, it looks like we're in for a rebound at the start of trade anyway. The DAX looking at a 40-point rise at the open, and the FTSE MIB over in Italy looking for an 86-point rise. Bucking the trend uh, of European markets moving to the downside has been Italy. Yesterday, no, another outperformance from that Italian index. So we'll keep an eye on that uh, as the trading day unfolds. Guys? Thank you very much indeed. Ch uh, Chinese trade data for June. June 9 CET with the U.S. tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese goods implemented after talks broke down in May expected to feature heavily in the reading. Exports are forecast to fall 2% and imports are also expected to contract. Let's go back to Duncan Wrigley. He is the head of China research at Sun Hung Kai Financial. Duncan, um, in terms of the Chinese ability to substitute U.S. trade, I mean, it's often talked about in the medium term, but is it possible in the short term? Um, in, in terms of the macro impact, it, it's relatively small. Um, the U.S. is a big trade partner, but China has trade partners across the, the whole world. Um, Europe is, is a bigger trade partner, and, and it's very diverse with Southeast Asia and so forth. Um, you know, so on one, on one level, that, there's that, but the problem is the rest of the world is also softening. Um, so it is very likely that, that China's going to need to take some action uh, to support domestic demand. To support, you know, against that, the, the cushion, the, the impact of slowing exports. I want to ask you about Huawei and how integral that could be, because you mentioned a moment ago that there mm. could be a deal around farmers in the States and Huawei in China, and we've all been watching it very, very closely. Uh, it does link in a lot of American suppliers that do business with Huawei, even right down to like even a, a Google, for instance, because of the Android platform. What do you think a deal will look like? How far ranging will it be to allow Huawei to do business, particularly even around 5G, the future? Um, well, based on what the uh, U.S. officials have said around after the G20, um, they've drawn a principle which is that um, U.S. companies will be allowed to supply uh, products and technology to Huawei as long as it doesn't impinge on, on U.S. national security. Um, so to me, what that looks like is um, if you look at Huawei's businesses, there's two main big businesses. One is uh, making mobile phones. Uh, nothing to do really with, with U.S. national security. That, that should be fine, I would think, and that includes the likes of Google. Um, but then the other area is providing 5G network equipment. And that's the area that's very sensitive in terms of uh, U.S. national security. So do you think it'll be allowed to play in some form around 5G network, or will it just be only allowed to proceed with its handset ambitions, consumer handset ambitions? Um, so I think the U.S. will probably remain uh, refuse to continue to refuse to allow Huawei to um, install or sell network network equipment to the U.S. And probably U.S. suppliers will not be allowed to um, provide a equipment that is or, or components that are used within uh, 5G base stations. Now the question is whether Huawei can find replacements for that, um, and it does seem that. 
for many of the components in, in 5G base stations, um, Huawei can find substitutes. Um, you know, the, the question is some of the substitutes, certainly from domestic Chinese suppliers or other Asian suppliers, may not be quite as good as, uh, as a US version right now. Um, so there, there is that um, possibility that, that Huawei will be slightly um, pulled back if it can't get full access to, to all US technology for, for 5G network equipment. Just very briefly, uh, ahead mm. of those trade numbers that are due later this morning, is bad news good news for markets right now when it comes to China, given the worse the data gets, the more likely it looks that they will engage in more stimulus? Um, well, I guess the, the crucial thing people will be looking out for in terms of trade is, is imports. You know, imports have been very weak over the last three, four months, and if they remain weak but at the same kind of uh, rate of fall, um, then that won't indicate uh, you know, more pressure on the domestic economy. If they really fall off, then sure, then I think markets will interpret that as um, a lot of weakness in terms of Chinese domestic demand and therefore um, a greater chance for, for, for China to step up and, and do some stimulus. Duncan, thank you very much for that. I want to talk about a big deal out of China, potentially China's first son, Tourism Group, and Thomas Cook go and talks over a £750 million capital injection. The recapitalization plan would involve an ownership reshuffle of Thomas Cook's tour operator and airline business, with Foson taking a controlling stake in the former and a minority interest in the latter. The proposal also sees a significant part of the troubled firm's bank and bond debt converted into equity, while existing shareholders would have their stakes diluted. And in other deal news, T-Mobile and Sprint are reportedly set to extend their July 29th deadline to complete a $26 billion merger. Media reports suggest the telecom providers need more time to win over the U.S. Department of Justice, whose antitrust department recommended the agency block the deal. Both companies have already agreed a range of concessions in a bid to get the deal through. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.